Erin Hunter. And I'm Kate Vlasic. And this is Generation BSC. So Generation BSC is our bi-weekly revisiting of every book in the Babysitter's Club series, book by book, episode by episode, discussing it from our perspectives now as, you know, millennial, cis, white women, and our remembrances from being a kid, and I'm reading them then, if we even read them. I'm sort of rambling. <laughs> it's been a couple of weeks since we've recorded, <laughs> and I somehow am confused about what the Babysitter's Club is. So, yes, Generation BSC, <laughs> we're here to talk about the Babysitter's Club. This week, we're talking about book number 31, which is Dawn's Wicked Stepsister, which is a continuation of our last book. So, Lauren, I don't know if you have anything to add after my rambly introduction or if you want to jump <laughs> into the back of the book. Well, I was just going to say, not only has it been a couple of weeks, but I think this book is is kind of unique. It's a little different than some of the other ones we've read for a lot of reasons that I think we're going to get into today. But mm-hmm. I definitely, your your rambling introduction feels very on point to sort of my jumbled feelings about this one. Mm-hmm. I don't have like a really strong... I'm excited to talk about it because I'm hoping that we can get to the bottom of how uh, of this one. <laughs> Whereas opposed, <laughs> oh boy. opposed to normally I come in with like a a really strong opinion um, and ready to share it. So let's set the scene as you as you said. So book number thirty one. This was released in February nineteen ninety. Uh, Anne M. Martin is still at the helm, and let's take it right to the back of the book. Um, I have a feeling this one's going to be dramatic, uh, because the book certainly involved its fair share of drama. For sure. Now that Dawn and Mary Ann are friends and sisters, Dawn wants them to do everything together. Share a room, talk all night, wear each other's clothes. But living with Mary Ann isn't exactly what Dawn expected. Marianne brags about having a date to the school dance, her kitten throws up on the rug, and she hogs Dawn's babysitting jobs. Dawn's always wanted a sister. Instead, she got Mary Ann, the wicked stepsister of Stony Brook. <laughs> so dramatic. Yep. I mean, bring in the drama. It, but all of those things happen, and they all are relevant to the story. And I mean, obviously to varying degrees. Exactly. But this is a back-of-the-book description that is pretty consistent with what actually happens in the book. It's dramatic, but it's not overly hyping something up that doesn't matter at all or bringing something in. Like, they did a pretty good job with this one. I agree. And I I think it's definitely dramatic, but certainly we're in Dawn's head for this book and a lot of Dawn's inner monologue in this and and certainly her actions are a little (laughs) dramatic. Oh, boy. Yeah, we are going to get into that. Yeah, let's wait, and why don't you remind everybody what actually happened before I start picking it apart. (laughs) Okay, so the Dawn-specific plot here. We pick up right after the end of Marianne and the Great Romance, with Sharon's bouquet sailing through the air towards the girls and right into Marianne's hands. Dawn's immediately annoyed, and this annoyance ebbs and flows throughout the book and from Marianne's perspective as well. The anticipated issues that come from trying to fit two 13-year-old girls and all their furniture, clothes, and other stuff into one bedroom and share that space while also trying to navigate blending a family all play out just as anticipated. The girls fight over various issues, including music versus silence while studying and feeling excluded, and Marianne spends time ignoring Dawn and focusing on her friendship with Christy. But we do get a nice moment where Dawn goes to Christy for advice. 
That advice somehow leads Dawn to a not-so-great plan of attack, deciding that she and Marianne both know they shouldn't be sharing a bedroom, but because they can't have a rational discussion about that, Dawn should scare Marianne out of their room and into the guest room by playing on her fears that Jared Mulray haunts the secret passage into Dawn's bedroom. Her brother Jeff provides some good advice on the best way to scare Marianne. Dawn's plan goes exactly as she plans, and she and Marianne spend the rest of the evening moving all of Marianne's furniture and stuff to the guest room. The newly blended Spear family has some has some growing pains generally throughout this one, but ends the book with each of them making suggestions on how better to live together as a family, and Dawn and Marianne are getting along much better as sisters and friends now that they have their own spaces. Shockingly, just like Marilyn and Carolyn in the last book. Okay, so the Babysitter's Club-specific plot. For the most part, the Babysitter's Club spends the book dealing with what they call the, quote, Pike Plague. Basically, Mallory comes down with chickenpox for the second time. Yes, that can actually happen. Then the triplets come down with pneumonia. Then Nikki breaks three fingers in gym class. Then Vanessa scrapes her elbow and sprains her ankle in a bike slash cherry tree crash. Then Margot and Claire get colds <laughs> that turn into bronchitis. And somewhere in there, Mrs. Pike hurts her knee playing tennis. And Mr. Pike burns his hand trying to make dinner for the entire sick and injured family. Our babysitters have several babysitting and helping jobs to try to keep the pikes up and running. Also, Jessie misses Mallory while she's under the weather, and Claudia stands on her head to, quote, make herself smarter, which causes Christy to make a dumb but funny joke, as usual. I loved that joke. That was that genuinely made me made me really laugh. We'll get to that because that that's part of my my random thoughts. But if we start there, when there's so much other stuff to get into, this will be another two and a half hour long, super special sized episode. <laughs> So I, I'm curious to see how you felt about this, Kate, because like I said, I have sort of mixed, I'm sort of a mixed bag. We had to pull off recording for a week. So the first time I read the book was like two weeks ago, and I was having a really rough go of it, sort of hit a pandemic wall um, and a state of the world wall and was in a really bad place and wound up just like, <laughs> I, I think I texted you after and I said, well, everyone in this book is a dick. Uh, <laughs> and coming back to it, you know, with a better, firmer grip on on my mental state, I stand by that everyone in here is a dick, but I also understand what the book is going for. For 95% of the book, until this random Dawn plot that I was like, oh, okay, now we're getting into the real crux of it. And then it, there are no consequences for Mm -hmm. it. In fact, the book seems to think that that was the right way to go about it. And that, oh, I, I have a big problem with that. So I'm, like I said, I, I've really sort of mixed feelings because it definitely wasn't the most enjoyable read. You know, watching everybody Mm -hmm. that we care about and love act like an asshole is just not my idea of a good time. But I I was on board with like getting, okay, this makes sense. I really understand how this can be helpful and like talk Mm -hmm. about modeling behavior for blended families up until it ends on like the anti-Danny Tanner message. So I'm, I'm left a little, like I said, discombobulated with it all, for lack of a better word. Now that I've word vomited, um, <laughs> what what were your big overall takeaways? Yeah, reading this one, it was really just – I feel like frustrated is the best way to describe it. I I felt mm-hmm. like this was another one of those books where, you know, the, the main girls that we're interacting with are seeing – be bigger parts of the story just aren't acting the way that they usually do. And I understand that, you know, obviously a character, even in a, you know, children's book like Babysitter's Club, is not necessarily always going to do the exact same thing the exact same way because that's part of these books is they need different stories, they need different things to happen. So 
objectively, I understand that. But like Marianne, uh, Marianne calls Don fat and Don's reaction yeah. is oh. like, I'm not even I'm I'm thin. And like, mm-hmm. we'll we'll get to back to that. And then you so you've got Marianne, you know, calling Don fat to be a bitch. You got her making fun of Don for not being able to find a date to the dance and not going to the dance as a result. You've got Don tricking Mary Ann into thinking that that she's being haunted by a ghost because it's not just that she tricks her into thinking like, oh, there's noises in the passage. I'm scared to like, she freaks Marianne out so much that she leaves their, their bedroom. Don sneaks in and puts a rose on her book that she's like studying or whatever, sneaks back into the passage, Marianne comes back, freaks out. She goes back. Dawn comes and takes the rose back. So she's like full on gaslighting her new stepsister. Exactly. Best friend. And like you said, nothing ever comes of it. It turns out that it was the exact right thing to do. And like Dawn's reasoning of, well, we both know that we shouldn't be living together, but neither of us wants to be the one to admit it. And it's like, I don't necessarily think that that's true. I mean, obviously Marianne feels... Like, she doesn't really belong in your room. So, yes, from that perspective, you are correct that you both know that this is a bad idea and you shouldn't be doing it anymore and no one really wants to give. But the fact that – because, like, Christy gives Dawn some really good advice. Like, you know, you guys need to figure out what works best for you. It's hard when you're blending a family. There's going to be growing pains. And maybe you guys need your own individual space. And, like, Dawn takes that really good advice from Christy, which, like, side note, always love a good Dawn Christy moment. We've talked about that before. Mm-hmm. And I loved, yeah. I loved that Dawn went to Christy and was like, I need help. What should I do? But the fact that Dawn <laughs> takes that great advice from Christy and thinks, I should terrify my new stepsister into moving out of our shared bedroom. Like, and uh, and the fact that it's just like, yep, worked out perfectly. Now we have separate rooms and we're best friends again. And Marianne now thinks she lives in a fucking haunted house where like a ghost legitimately came into her bedroom and put a rose on her book and then took it back. Like, uh, I'm, I'm like working myself up more because like, <laughs> I guess I'm beyond frustrated. It's just, I wanted... I, we knew that this one was going to be tough. We, I mean, we talking about it in the mm-hmm. last episode. We knew that this was going to be hard because it was hard in the last one where we could see the girls. You know, obviously we were seeing it from Marianne's perspective rather than Dawn's, which we are here, and we could see that those difficulties were getting set up in that last book. So we knew that there was going to be a lot of that in this book. So I'm not frustrated with it from that perspective because, like you said, it it most of this book is actually very good at like navigating what it means to na- have a new sibling and a new parental figure and blending families and joining spaces and it, most of it was very good so i was i was fine with that but the way that they were just so mean and cruel to each other was not great <laughs> Yeah, there were definitely places where it went way, way too far, like out of character too far. And the, I well, I would have said that Marianne calling Dawn fat was way out of character until the last super special where Marianne was fat shaming the poor little girl on the bus. So, right. you know, maybe, maybe that is more of a characteristic than I remembered of Marianne. But if that's true, God, what a depressing thought. Like, right. woof. And like you said, like we've both said, that the messaging going throughout while frustrating was a good message. And 
while it, I, I think if that had continued on and, and if it had resolved in a more productive Danny Tanner mm-hmm. moment, I would have been, I, I would have said, that, you know, this wasn't maybe my most favorite book to read. It wasn't quite as, quite as much fun as the other ones, you know, and then we would have called out some of those extreme moments. But legitimately, like, as I was reading, I was going, okay, this is good advice. She's getting to the right place. Dawn even says, Marianne was right. I did really push her to Mm -hmm. move in with me. She didn't really want to in the first place. And so then, and like you said, Christy's actually genuinely good advice. Christy, this is great showing for Christy, Mm -hmm. I would say. A really good Christy book. Not only her funny joke, which we will get to. We're just going to keep teasing. Um, <laughs> but but like you said, good, great advice for Dawn. I really, I think she handled it really maturely. I think in a lesser book, Christy would have been excited to see Dawn mm-hmm. and Marianne at odds. And, you know, use that to her advantage to, quote, get her best friend back. And, and that didn't happen, which was really relieving. And so I was like, I was really on board. And when Dawn started to recognize, yep, I really pushed for this. She even was referenced the the twins, like you mentioned that, oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. they do. And then she has this great conversation with Jeff about emotional space, the need for emotional space Mm -hmm. and how people can take up space, even if it's not physical. And that's wow, what a great, great concept to talk to kids. But for then for her to take that lesson and do this, like, she claims, and, and, and she's saying, and the book seems to agree that this is a way to let them both off the hook without having to admit that they don't want to live with each other. And, but it, it's letting the Dawn specifically off the hook for Dawn acknowledging, I created the situation. Right. And I don't want to have to acknowledge that and deal with that. So I'm going to do something truly, truly terrible to someone that I supposedly love, my family, mm-hmm. my best friend, my cis as they obnoxiously say throughout <laughs> and I, I, and the book seems to say that that was the right move like oh good they both got to preserve their dignity what what dignity did marianne have in this situation and the rose was bad enough don goes even further she leaves the rose then she comes back and takes the rose and leaves a bone oh that's right i forgot the bone i think i blocked that out <laughs> oh god she fully says i picked a dried out chicken bone because it looks like a finger and then, uh, yeah, that is, I, I mean, I was really expecting that to backfire and then the message to be like, hey, yes. the right way to talk, to deal with these things is to talk about them. But for that to be the solution, I, I'm genuinely appalled. Like, we, we've had our problems pointed out overall with the series before. We're obviously very conscious of, of you know, we're reading them in 2021. We're reading them in a, in a backdrop of a very different world. So full disclosure, we are recording this at the end of the week that saw the murder of Dante Wright, the FedEx mass shooting, and the release of the Adam Toledo video that very clearly shows a 13-year-old boy being shot in the chest with his hands raised. So we've got a lot of baggage that we're Mm -hmm. bringing to these books. And and that, that certainly is is a filter that we're viewing this all from. And I would say, for the most part, I mean, obviously there are some very late 80s, early 90s blind spots that we've been pointing out, particularly around race, particularly around the fat phobia that, like, we it's already come up this week and we talked mm-hmm. a lot about in our super special. But overall, we've agreed that the messaging is good. They're modeling good behavior. They're showing it, it, it's it's progressive for the time. So I think that's why this was so disappointing mm-hmm. for me, even more than angering, is because... 
I expected more from from these books that 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 the solution has always been to this point telling people what you need, talking about your feelings, mm-hmm. having honest conversations. I mean, that's how things are resolved with Marilyn and Carolyn. They both acknowledge this situation is no longer working for us. This is what I need. Let's have a conversation yep. about it. The Babysitter's Club helps them have that conversation with their mom. Like, we've had this. And for them to completely disregard that that messaging and have Dawn act in this way that is not only out of character, but truly, I mean, borderline evil. Gaslighting is the exact Mm -hmm. word that I wrote down. This is the literal definition of gaslighting, making someone believe that they are crazy. And, you know, like going in the hall or in the passage and making noises and making the door squeak is bad enough. I mean, that's, but that to me feels, you know, on the side of childhood Mm -hmm. prank type of deal. But when you when we take it into leaving the rose and leaving the bone, that's bad enough. But the fact that she then comes back in and takes them away is what really takes us to a whole nother level mm-hmm. and then acts like she doesn't know what Marianne is talking about. Because that is going to legitimately make Mary Ann feel like she is losing her mind. Hence the definition of gaslighting. Well, and this is what Dawn says after everything in the book. She says I was sorry I'd scared Marianne so badly, but I knew I'd not, I'd done the right thing. And when Mom and Richard came home, they would convince Marianne that there was no ghost and that her imagination was just working overtime. Eventually, she would believe them and forget the whole incident. No, she fucking will not. <laughs> yeah. And again, you know what? I would even buy that. I would have still been disappointed. But if it had just been some moaning and creaking, I would have been like, yeah, not cool, but probably. Right. But this was taken to such an extreme that... Uh, like legitimately, that's therapy worthy. Marianne mm-hmm. is now uh, going to be literally questioning her grasp on reality. She knew right. they were there. She picked them up. She touched them, and then they were gone. And everyone is going to tell her that she is crazy for, and that didn't actually happen. And that's supposed yep. to be okay. We're fine. She'll get over that. Uh, no, that is not something you just get over. I, I just, I, I, I'm a little flabbergasted that that was the solution and was i i mean i don't want to say that they uh, that they are are condoning that behavior but by not having any kind of consequences by having that be the thing that quote unquote worked Mm -hmm. it what else are we supposed to take away from it right i mean not that i'm going (laughs) okay i'm I'm just gonna say this you're gonna understand why i'm trying to like hedge my bets here the okay, the Hayes production code was not good. We can all agree mm-hmm. that that is the case. One Correct. thing that I think was a little bit helpful, at least when it comes to like children's books, in under the Hayes code, the bad guy had to get punished at the end of the movie. And so, mm-hmm. like going back to what you're saying, like by Dawn not having any even internal sort of realization that she made a mistake. The implication is that she made the right choice because there's no, there's nothing, you know, not that I'm saying she should, (laughs) I mean, in in Hayes Code movies, like, the mobster has to die at the end. Like, I'm not saying Dawn should die, but, like, the fact that she terrifies her sister now is making her sister question whether or not she actually saw these things that Dawn knows she actually put in their bedroom. And Dawn is just like, 
Yeah, well, eventually she'll just forget that this ever happened and it's fine. And, you know, ultimately it's it worked out for the best because now we're not sharing a room anymore, which is what we both wanted. So it's fine. Like, no, it's not fine. This is terrible. So I think another layer that made it especially frustrating for me is until that point where Dawn went so far off the rails, the book had done a relatively good job of keeping their infractions and the way that they treated each other relatively even. I mean, we're in Dawn's head, so there's some natural inclination to side with her because we're seeing her perspective, Mm -hmm. which, side note, I know we got Marianne's perspective in the last book, but I think this is one that really would have benefited being like a special kind of book where it was these two stories told in tandem as a super special Mm -hmm. with just Marianne and Dawn. So we're getting both of their perspectives through all the way through. But either way, aside from some, you know, the fat phobia nonsense of it and the taunting Dawn about the boyfriend thing, which even that, I'm like, when the way she originally says it, I don't, I think Dawn may have overinterpreted it, mm-hmm. but then later it doubles down in a weird way. I have mixed feelings about that one. But e- in either case, it was doing a relatively good job of showing everyone's perspective. Not a, And we should be clear that it's not just about Marianne and Dawn. It's also talking about Richard and Sharon, which is, you know, what we questioned ahead of time. Like, how are these two people going <laughs> to live in the same house? So, like I said, there, I think that they it did a pretty good job of being balanced and everybody being a little bit right and everybody being a little bit wrong mm-hmm. up until that point. And, and that sort of kills what I thought the book was going for, which was talking about how it's hard on everyone and everyone needs to make adjustments and you know, seeing where the other person's coming from. So it just felt even worse because it was to that point, like I said, maybe wouldn't have been my most fun read and not mm-hmm. certainly not one that I'd want to like pick up and reread, but at least a really good picture of the difficulties that come with a blended family and then just bomb the ending so hard. Mm-hmm. I think that made it worse. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Because I feel like leaving aside the the fat phobia stuff and the boyfriend shaming stuff all of the difficulties that we see both from Marianne and from Don and from Richard and Sharon like you pointed out they're sort of normal issues that would come up because we're coming we're blending two families together one which is very strict very rigid rules very rigid roles in the family and one where it's just sort of let's all have a good time. So there's going to be some butting of heads. There's going to be some miscommunications. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be, you know, expectations that we're going to spend a full Saturday cleaning the house versus I wanted to go to the mall and have fun. Like those types of things make sense. And, you know, Don and Marianne fighting over whether there's music playing or not playing while they're Mm -hmm. doing their studying, like all of those things make perfect sense. And they really do sort of lend themselves to a very straightforward story that does give an opportunity to have modeling behavior and teach some lessons about blending families because as we've discussed like this book came out in 1990 there were a lot more parents of children getting divorced at that time so kids reading these books a lot of them might need to learn about that type of situation and how to deal with what might happen if their parent or yeah I guess if if one of their parents or both of their parents get remarried and they have to start living with another family and now they have this new blended family and a lot of this book is great about that and even after (laughs) the gaslighting bit you know the four of them Sharon and Richard and Dawn and Marianne they have a very sort of straightforward conversation about how about we do this I'll do this you do this like you know because one of the issues is you know 
on Saturdays, Richard makes breakfast for everyone and he continually makes bacon for Sharon. Even though Sharon does not eat meat, she never eats the bacon. And when Sharon is making dinner for everyone, she only makes healthy vegetarian food. And Richard and Marianne are like, we want to eat meat. And Sharon says, well, you can eat that at lunch when you're not around me. And they get to a point where it's like, on Sundays, we're going to do meal planning for the week. Sharon and Don are going to make healthy mm-hmm. food that they want to eat. Richard and Marianne are going to make whatever meat-based <laughs> cuisine they want to eat. And they can still have their family meals together, but no one has to cook food that they don't feel comfortable cooking. And no one is forced to eat something that they don't want to eat. And so it's really great that by the end, they sort of figure these things out. And if you could just have had a conversation between Marianne and Dawn about maybe we shouldn't live in the same room. I think, you know, call it, and especially even if they call it back to Marilyn and Carolyn, which, as you noted, Dawn does in her narration, why can't they just have that conversation, you know, rather than her taking it to this extreme, ridiculous plan that is terrible in every way, shape, and form, if they could have added that to the conversation or had that be the catalyst for having this family conversation, as opposed to this sidetrack derailment where Don turns into this ridiculous, terrible human being, and then they get back on track. <laughs> like, it's uh, frustrating. I, I, that's, I, I'm, I'm back to that word. <laughs> frustrating is how I feel about this book. Yeah. I think that's really the best word for it because it's I, mm-hmm. it's more frustrating to me, like we said, because it gets so close to getting it right. Right. And just exactly. this one huge glaring thing. And then uh, to me, it, like especially in that scene that you were talking about at the end where it actually does model the good behavior, Dawn is the one who's given the moral line, which is, and this is directly from the book, I think we should all be more honest with each other. We should stop trying to please each other so much. We're going along with things we don't like or believe in or with things that annoy us just to please each other. And it isn't working. I'm sorry, says the girl who literally scared her new sister out of her room. We should be more honest. Like, you chose the absolute, you acknowledged, not you. (laughs) (laughs) Talking to them. You're talking to Don as a real real person. Seriously, though, Dawn used active trickery while acknowledging that she was the one who created the situation, decides that to preserve Marianne's sense of dignity, (laughs) she is going to terrify her so that Marianne doesn't have to admit that this isn't working. So she's done that that is she is being dishonest to herself about why she's doing it. She is full on protecting herself because she doesn't want to admit that she made a mistake. And then she has the balls to come down to the group or the ovaries or the whatever. I'm trying to be less gendered in my speech, which is very hard seeing as how you guys is so firmly freaking planted in there. In any case, she comes down and has the temerity use a big word if I can't think of a more fun one, (laughs) to lecture everyone else that the problem is we're not being honest with each other enough. Mm -hmm. Like, you were the most dishonest of them all. And, you know, like I said, I thought the book did an overall pretty good job of trying to keep it balanced. And I'm not going to lie, I, for a lot of it, was on Marianne's side, even hearing Mm -hmm. Dawn's reasoning i mean right off the bat it starts with like we said the moment where or like you said rather kate the moment where mary ann catches the bouquet it opens with dawn bitching about how mary ann shouldn't have caught the bouquet she deserved to catch the bouquet because it was her mom's bouquet and then she even she even says that people want to catch the bouquet because they want to be the next to get married and (laughs) is then like 
but I deserve it, which is a wild statement from a 13-year-old. And then she acknowledges, even a wilder, that, well, Marianne does have a boyfriend, so she's likely closer to getting married than me, which, I mean, just, she's like, she's probably thinking about Logan. And as we learned, again, hearkening back to the super special, yes, guaranteed that that's where Marianne's <laughs> that is mind That is literally went. all she thinks about is Logan. Right? Well, that's not, not really fair, but it in... In our recent experience, that seems to be the case. But for Dawn to immediately get bratty about that, like, I get it. I understand. I would be jealous, too, as a kid. Jealousy is natural. Maybe not about that. Mm -hmm. I was never one who um, was interested in catching the bouquet. I very memorably had a Sex in the City moment where it literally fell in front of my feet and the whole, like, wedding started cheering for me. And I had to pick it up and be like, yay. (laughs) It was very awkward. But I get that. Like, jealousy is normal. But she immediately starts getting personal attacks with Marianne mm-hmm. about being – that it, that seemed over the top to me. Then the whole, you know, she – like she did acknowledge but take the wrong message from, she really was the one who orchestrated the situation by full-on insisting that Marianne moved in and then being mad – at everything that Marianne did. It just seemed like a lot of trying to have it both ways to me. Mm -hmm. And again, maybe that's because we aren't seeing Marianne's perspective, but I would have thought, like I said earlier, that that would make us more prone to seeing Dawn's perspective. But it just annoyed me more if that seems, I mean, fair or not, that's what what I felt. So I I didn't know how, how you, again, leaving out the more egregious you know, examples of just terrible behavior on the natural things like, you know, the, the, I I think the music while studying is a perfect example Mm -hmm. of this is a genuine conflict. No one here is right or no one here is wrong. And yet Dawn still somehow came, and maybe that's just because that happened so late in the book. By that point, I was already really frustrated with her, but I I was really curious as I was getting more and more frustrated and, and like, I don't really like Dawn a lot in this book. It, I mean, not that I liked Marianne much better, especially when we got into the fat phobia part, <laughs> but I, I thought it was an interesting choice to make her so unlikable. And then I was just wondering if that was my lens reading it. So like, like we said, leaving out the, the truly terrible stuff, overall, how are you, how did you respond to Dawn's narration and Dawn's presentation of events? I I think I'm I'm closer to your perspective. I feel like... I again frustrated is a, continues to be my word of the book because I was just really always finding myself to be extremely frustrated with Dawn because you know something would happen whether it was the bouquet or the music thing and she would again react like a normal 13 year old would you know she wants to do what she wants to do she wants to be right so I totally understand why she would be acting this way but even in her narration it's always like well, I I don't really care what Marion wants, so I'm just going to do this. So I I almost feel like because we're getting her internal monologue, she's coming across as worse because I'm sure that mm-hmm. Marianne, especially when it comes to the music while studying. So Marianne wants it to be quiet. Don wants music to be on. Don just turns on music and Marianne sort of lives with it for a few songs and then she's like, "Don, can you please turn that off? I need it to be quiet for me to study." Dawn turns it off and then she's like, well, I want the music on. So she just turns it back on. So I'm I'm sure that if we got it from Marianne's perspective, I would be equally as annoyed and frustrated with her. But because we are seeing Dawn be like, well, I want the music on, so I'm just going to turn it on. I don't care what Marianne wants. I'm like, 
I think that's what's like adding to it is because we can see her sort of being petty and making these like snap decisions and being jealous of Marianne. I, I think that it sort of in this situation kind of taints our feelings <laughs> towards Dawn as opposed to Marianne yeah. because we don't know what Marianne's thinking. So we can assume that she's being nice about it when in reality we saw in the last book she can be just as jealous and petty and whatever mm-hmm. as Dawn is being here but because in this book we're only hearing from Dawn you sort of forget <laughs> that Marianne can be just the same way so I think I think we're on the same page with Dawn but I think that there's a reason why we're more frustrated with Dawn in this book than we are with Marianne. I think you're exactly right. And I think that was just sort of a literary um, blind spot for me, Mm -hmm. I guess, in that being a trained English major, one of the things we study is how, you know, who you choose as your protagonist because that that's what who the your audience, your reader, your viewer, whatever, empathizes with. Mm-hmm. Think like Breaking Bad or The Sopranos or whatever. Um, any of those 2000s, you know, complicated bad men protagonists. Because we see things through their perspective, we're more primed to empathize with them and see their point of view. Mm-hmm. So I think I brought that that into this expecting that to be the case when in fact it just made her look more petty which I honestly think now that you are are like talking through it that's probably much closer to reality right like we we have these grand views of of our no own nobility in our heads mm-hmm. but it, I don't want somebody listening to my inner monologue <laughs> yeah. it's petty and mean and like one of the things that I train often that I think about a lot is Brene Brown, my hero. She refers to it as the shitty first draft, mm-hmm. that we're not beholden to the very first thing that pops in our brain. We have the ability to choose to be different. Like, we might not be able to, in the moment, think differently or feel differently about a situation. But we do have the ability to stop and act as if, act differently. And the more you do that, the more it changes how you view the mm-hmm. situations. So... We all get to be kinder to ourselves about what our initial reaction is to things and and use that as a chance to learn and to grow and to say, hey, why did I have this particular reaction? I mean, certainly speaking to the state of the world over the last year and a half, I've certainly done a lot of that where mm-hmm. I, you know, examining the ways that I've always considered myself an ally and then what ways was I falling down on that identity? You know, not speaking out when I knew I should, keeping my mouth shut to keep the peace. I think that's been a big part of the conversation that's come out in this last week is what can white allies do? Because this keeps happening. And it's not about just, mm-hmm. you know, putting Black Lives Matter in your in your bio, but speaking to the people in your life that don't believe or that may be just misinformed, or mm-hmm. I, I don't know, I, it's all complicated. But allowing that that grace of hearing the, you know, that how you first react to something doesn't have to be the be all end all. And it, it what really matters is how you choose to move forward from that. Do you act on that shitty first impulse? Or do you choose to be better? And at the end of the day, I could absolutely forgive and understand Dawn's shitty inner monologue, her shitty first draft. But especially at the end, she then chooses mm-hmm. to act on that. And and that is what so – I think that in hindsight makes the the rest of it worse. Like I think reading it back through the second time, like I said, I certainly wasn't as – I hate everyone. They all deserve to go to hell. (laughs) And knowing how it ends up, how Dawn ends up choosing to resolve the conflict, huge sarcastic air quotes around the word resolve. I think it did impact 
the way I was reading some of her inner monologue earlier there. And it wound up mm-hmm. giving me more sympathy toward Mary Ann and maybe giving Mary Ann more benefit of the doubt where she didn't necessarily deserve it in places. But I think like even in the example of where we're talking about the music, you described so well the back and forth, but you even said like Marianne asks, hey, Dawn, can you turn off the music? I can't study. She states why she needs it to mm-hmm. turn off. She asks it as a request. And and she didn't just like reach over and turn it off. And then Dawn, she says, I don't always need music to study, but today it seems like I did. And instead of saying that to Marianne, hey, I'm having trouble concentrating in the in the silence. Can we compromise in some way? Or pull out headphones mm-hmm. or done any other thing. She just immediately turns it back on with no conversation. And that, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm talking myself in circles here a little bit. But I, I was really, I think I really take your point that, that in this case, seeing from Dawn's perspective made it worse mm-hmm. and not better. <laughs> Definitely. So since it seems like we sort of talked ourselves out on the <laughs> the Don Marianne situation yes. here, I feel like we can't leave this episode without talking about our B plot and the Pike Plague and yes. all of the catastrophes that have befallen that family over the course of this book. Especially because Stacy during her, you know, babysitting job at some point during the book has to wear a surgeon's mask while she's in the Pike house mm-hmm. to avoid catching pneumonia from the triplets or Mallory's chicken pox. And I just, it feels very timely <laughs> in, you know, April of 2021 to be wearing a mask while in someone else's house. I mean, I guess Stacy probably wouldn't be in anyone else's house right now, but if she were, yeah. she would definitely be wearing a mask. That was absolutely one of the most unexpected, like, what the hell happen- is happening in yeah. those book moments when they just, when they fully started to get into the whole need for masks and everybody's reaction to the mask, which was, I don't really want to, but I don't want to get sick. Yeah. And then even at the end, so then later, I can't remember who it was at the end that needed to go over Claudia and Jesse. Mm-hmm. It was when Claudia and Jesse went over when things got even, went from bad to worse. They agree that they need to wear the masks, even though they really don't want to. And then, like, at one point, Stacy says, why don't we all go outside so we can take these stupid masks <laughs> yeah. off? And I was like, oh, boy, how many times have I said that sentence over the past year? But it was, oh, it was when Jessie, it was Jessie, when she was talking about how she was wearing it because Squirt had not yet had the chicken pox. Mm-hmm. And her mom wanted to be extra cautious because she didn't want him to get it that young. And... Jesse says something to the effect, I don't think I, I wrote it down, but she says something to the effect of how awful would I feel if I got him sick mm-hmm. uh, with, you know, because of this. And it was such a, I was, that warmed my heart. It was a very needed mm-hmm. moment of awe in this book because yeah. that is genuinely, I mean, we've had this conversation personally many times. I'm sure we've mentioned it on the on the podcast as well, but for me, the mask wearing and when the members of some members of my family, extended family, and or just, you know, random assholes on the street mock me for, you know, being a sheeple or letting the fear rule me or whatever nonsense. Uh, and I've, I've repeated over and over again, my stance this whole time has been, I'm not afraid of getting coronavirus. I mean, I certainly have not perfect health, but I'm I'm relatively healthy. I'm in decent shape. I, if I got it, I it would suck. I wouldn't want to be sick and have maybe lingering symptoms, but I'm not afraid of dying. I'm not afraid of my own health. What I'm afraid of is exactly what Jesse's afraid of, mm-hmm. of unknowingly and unwittingly 
passing that sickness on to someone else who is far less equipped to deal with it than I am. And that's what I couldn't live with. And so it was so refreshing to have have this behavior modeled in books. I, re- I wish this was one of the ones that the graphic novels right. were out now. Um, in, in fact, Scholastic is probably like, oh, why? <laughs> Go faster. <laughs> Get to that point. It would have been so perfect. Because, yeah, because the, the girls... Uh, in mass, their response is, yeah, this sucks. It's not fun, but it's the right thing to do to protect myself and others. And I mean, I didn't think that that attitude was that crazy or hard. And yet, oh boy, do we see demonstrated differently every day. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, there's, I, I have nothing to add. I agree wholeheartedly with everything <laughs> you just said and the fact that people, care more about themselves than literally anyone else on the planet is mind-boggling to me. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so Mallory has the chicken pox for the second time. Which I genuinely, you mentioned, I didn't know, had to Google. Yeah, I, I actually am one of those people who had the chicken pox twice. <gasps> really? Yeah. How did I never know this? I I mean, well, when would it have come up? It was when you were a kid. <laughs> right. <laughs> Good point. It was long before I met you, Lauren. And I, I don't really know <laughs> the ins and outs, but my understanding from my mom, because I'm pretty sure the first time I had it, I was like pretty young. And I'm my understanding is that my first case was very, very mild. So mm. I didn't build up all of the antibodies to stop it the second time, which Again, sort of <laughs> timely conversation with all the vaccinations going right. around, which I guess also sort of moment in time. I just got my second shot today. You got your second shot earlier this week. So we are yeah. quickly approaching an opportunity to record together in person since we will be fully vaccinated in a couple weeks and have all of our antibodies. Woo-hoo. But so excited. Yeah. So I, the fact that. I mean, I guess I don't remember exactly when I had chickenpox the second time. I think it was like maybe first grade. So it seems sort of strange. Like, where did Mallory get the chickenpox as an 11 year old? Oh, I guess she got him from the Newtons. Maybe they didn't say where she got it. Oh, yeah. But like the fact that none of the other kids, like, have Margot and Claire already had the chickenpox? I have so many questions about like how. It, it, like, is Mrs. Mm-hmm. Pike one of those parents that's like, when the first kid gets it, like, all the kids are you know, stuck in the room with them so that they all get it at the same time and like get it out of the way. I like, is that a thing? Do I I know I read a, (laughs) I read a book, one of the great brain books, the younger brother wants to get sick first so that he gets better first. So he like goes and catches the mumps from their neighbor. So then his older brother, the great brain has to catch it from him. And so then he's stuck inside when the younger brother's outside playing. So that has always like stuck in my head. (laughs) So I don't know if parents actually do that. (laughs) I'm pretty sure in that my they brain do. they do. So I feel like Mrs. Pike would be one of those parents. I feel like Mrs. Pike would have been smarter though to do it in batches. I don't know that right. she would have been willing to take on all seven kids with chickenpox at the same time, especially with some of the younger ones. So I definitely feel like Mallory and the triplets, and maybe even like Vanessa, probably got it all in a batch. Yeah, I know it wasn't strictly intentional, but my brother and I had them at the same time, mm-hmm. and my mom said, "Yeah, that was a good thing." Because it, you know, get knock it all out at once, and then you don't have to worry about it. Right. But I, but I definitely do think that there is some 
degree of that, especially now with chicken pox, it's gotten to the point where it's so mild and it's so... Well, and there's a vaccine for chicken pox now. Yeah. I, I forgot about that part. Which also, like, how are they going to update this book? Like, yeah, are the Newtons anti-vaxxers or something? Like, <laughs> what disease is Mallory going to come down with that keeps her laid up in bed for weeks. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. Interesting. Because I, I totally forgot about the chicken pox vaccine. You know, I don't have kids right. in my day-to-day <laughs> life, other than my nephew, who is not even a year old yet. So that hasn't come up. But that's so funny. I mean, I obviously knew that as an adult, you can get shingles mm-hmm. as, you know, a reemergence of the chicken pox virus. But I had no idea that you could get it twice. That's so fascinating. I genuinely Googled it. I was like, is that true? (laughs) So, hey, as much as it may have annoyed me or frustrated me, I I learned something. (laughs) So I'll I'll definitely take that. I love learning new factoids. Mm -hmm. It's so funny because you were empathizing with Mallory and I was fully on the triplet track because I had walking pneumonia in college and it was miserable. Oh, I could barely breathe. For months, I had to carry around a nebulizer and I would get so tired after like two steps. Mm -hmm. So I was really feeling the triplets pain there. So go figure. Uh, Ironically enough, while neither of us have had to deal with um, blended family situations, (laughs) we both would have been right at home with a pipe (laughs) pain. Right at home with that situation, dealing with injuries and maladies left and right. They did choose a great B plot for this A plot. Like it was a a really nice distraction. And it was I know sometimes some of our B plots sort of lend themselves to the A plot. This one really had nothing to do with the A plot, and that was nice. And so sometimes yeah. it's nice when the, the A plot and B plot sort of track and inform each other or interact in certain ways. It's also nice in certain situations when the B plot is really just sort of its own thing, and this is one of those situations. Yeah, there have definitely been a number of times where I've said, man, I wish we didn't have this shoehorned in B-plot so that we Mm -hmm. had more time to dedicate to the issue at hand. But this was one of those times where having that B-plot really, really worked because it did cut the tension. It was a complete, um, like, you felt compassion and bad for everybody in that scenario, the babysitters, the pikes, the parents. (laughs) Right. and, And there was no villain. There was no bad guy. There was no, I mean, it was just shit happens. Right. And as someone who who did come from not not quite a pike size family, but had four kids in the house from age 10 on, I can definitely attest that it did often feel like when it's raining, it's pouring yeah. and, and not even always in the same way. Like, it seems very, very plausible to me that Mrs. Pike might be super stressed out, needed to go get some exercise. But then, you know, her body is tense and tired from dealing with Mm -hmm. everything. So she injures herself. And same with Mr. Pike, you know, then having so much more burden fall to him and have to cook for all these people. And as we saw in the breakfast routine, (laughs) cooking for a a family of 10 or nine is not easy because everybody wants something different. So I can easily see how how trying to juggle all of that would lead to another injury. Mm -hmm. And it just even Vanessa's accident was a, a unique situation. They acknowledged that it was a unique situation because she's not normally an outdoorsy kid, but she was looking for different things to do and couldn't stay in the house as much because of all the sickness. And there was less attention to be placed on her because there there was more attention on the sick people. So that leads to accidents. Mm-hmm. So it, it all felt very plausible. It felt realistic and lived in. I felt like nobody was a total pain. There was acknowledgement that the the sickies could be obnoxious. The bells were a terrible idea. I don't know who <laughs> yep. thought that that was a good idea, but somebody's seen too many Brady Bunch episodes. Exactly. But in any case, 
it was a nice breather from some of the more frustrating aspects of the book, even if it was not the most fun mm-hmm. side plot we've ever had. It, it, it was it certainly played its part as a tension reliever very, very well. For sure. Definitely enjoyed it. Okay, so I guess the question now is, do you have any other uh, big picture issues related to, you know, the A plot or the B plot? Are we ready for some random thoughts? And finally, telling everyone about Christy's hilarious joke. You are absolutely reading my mind. I was going to say, as much as we've been sort of harping on some of the less fun and, and less successful parts of this book... It's not all doom and gloom. There are some really fun things, and starting with Christie's jokes. So, as Kate mentioned in the overview, Claudia is attempting to make herself smarter by standing on her head. So the logic behind that, she claimed, was that it was going to make all the blood pool to her brain, which would make her smarter. Which, side note, um, how much did you love Janine piping in no when Claudia <laughs> asked if this is what a genius feels like? Like listening in from her bedroom. I loved that. In any case, Claudia shares this theory with the group, and Christie's response is, Well, I've spent nearly all day sitting down, she replied, so you can imagine where my blood has settled. I must have the smartest. And then she is cut off by an appalled Marianne, who does, in fact, <laughs> laugh very hard. And I, I just lost it. I love that. Because if there is a smart ass in this book, it is 1,000% Christy Thomas. Yeah, that, I just <laughs> love that moment. It was... Well, like the whole like scene, like you said, you know, them all coming in for the meeting. Claudia's on her head. Like no one knows what's going on. She can, she like flops back over and is all loopy. And that's when she asks if this is what feeling like a, or this is what being a genius feels like. And Janine says no. It's just I. I mean, we we say this every time one of these moments comes up, but it's just so nice when we get to see our girls like joking around and just being friends. And there's no drama. There's no babysitting emergency. It's just like a group of girls at one of their houses having a good time together. And it's just so nice, especially when they get to do silly stuff like stand on their head and then make dumb jokes about their butts being smart. I know. That's honestly was one of my favorite parts of the book for that very reason. And I think that there were a a couple of times, I I don't want to forget to call them out, that I did note that it was nice to see Dawn and Marianne, even in the midst of their fight, have these little moments of... The way Dawn describes it is a couple of different times is like, I couldn't help but laugh or Marianne couldn't help but smile. Mm -hmm. And like reminders that they were friends first, that this is a response to a really intense situation and not just, you know, two mean girls going at each other. And and I think those reminders were really, really needed and necessary throughout, not only for, you know, tension breaking and like moments that we actually enjoyed, but for reminding the girls – that there is something worth fighting for there. So I I, I loved that moment for mm-hmm. so, so many reasons. Um, it, I, I just thought it was the best. Yep, definitely agree. And speaking of jokes, there, there's another moment. I guess it really isn't a joke, but this also made me laugh while I was reading. So Claudia is babysitting for the Pikes. The triplets are, quote unquote, not feeling well. So Mrs. Pike is taking them to the doctor. So it's just Mallory, Vanessa, Nikki, Margot, and Claire there and so Mallory's sort of a backup babysitter but she's still sick so the rest of the kids have all decided to play hospital and Mm -hmm. so they're taking their turns being doctors being nurses being ambulance drivers being patients being family members of patients and one of the things that I loved the most so Nikki is being the ambulance driver and he brings in Claire 
and as his patient and says, car accident, ma'am. She was riding her bike and she ran into a truck. I did not, Claire whispered loudly. The truck ran into me. I was like, (laughs) I love that so much. Like, I can see a little five-year-old girl being like, no, it didn't. Like, I didn't do that. (laughs) Like, in the middle of it. Like, it's irrelevant, really, for how this story is Mm -hmm. supposed to play out in the game that they're playing. But she just is indignant. Like, I didn't do anything wrong. It hit me. I just love that. 1,000%. I actually thought you were going to refer to the fact that Claudia's overall reaction to the game was, or maybe it was Stacy. Uh, because that they played a couple of times mm-hmm. during various babysitters. Oh, oh, one of their responses is, wow, playing doctor sure has changed. We used to like check each other for colds and flus. And I was like, why would you limit yourself that to that? <laughs> <laughs> like the whole point is it could be whatever. Exactly. Like I was full on set and broken bones and, you know, doing open heart surgery. So I, I, I was like, uh-oh, poor. It, it had to have been Stacy because Claudia had had more imagination mm-hmm. than that. For sure. I did have another laugh out loud line that was also Pike related. Also at the very end of the book, I think it's the same meeting with uh, smart-ass Christy. When they're talking about Mallory being recovered, Christy mentioned that she's really lucky that she didn't get any scars. Christy looks at Mallory, and Mallory clearly has a look on her face because she added, you are unscarred, aren't you? And this exchange (laughs) follows. For the most part, mumbled Mal, glancing at Jesse. Jesse started to laugh. Okay, said Christy, out with it. Where are your scars? In unmentionable places, was all (laughs) Mal would reply. I loved that. That made me laugh Ugh, such a good, it was such so a good great. response. I love it. Yeah. So yeah, there were definite bright spots in this for sure. Did you have any others that really stood out? Those were kind of my big ones. I only have two sort of like random like questions, and they're both from the first chapter. So okay. I can't. Rem- I didn't write down who says this, but I remember this insult being used in like I think the last book too, and maybe the super special we just read. They call each other sore heads. Like, yeah, what I, I I've literally never heard anyone call anyone a sore head. Like, I, objectively, I understand what you're trying to get at. Like, oh, you're being a whiny baby or whatever. Like, you're sore about it. But like a sore head. I just I no, I don't like it. <laughs> I agree. I it, And it seems random. I, I noted that, too, because it was so obvious. And they've used it a couple of times. And every time they do, I just think, huh, that is just not an insult that I've ever heard before. And mm-hmm. to me, it it, it kind of smacks of trying to make fetch happen. Yes. Where they kind of wanted to have their own, I mean, very similar to like Dibley Fresh, which we haven't really heard from in a long time mm-hmm. since the beginning. I wonder if that's going to come back at all because I remember it being far yeah. more prominent. And I don't know if maybe that was the TV show or movie that, that used it more. I'd be curious to, now that you've got the VHS, go back <laughs> and, and watch some of, some of those because I haven't watched the 90s HBO mm-hmm. show in a long, long time. The movie I've seen more more frequent. Or Definitely. Recently. In any case, it does to, it did to me feel like shoehorned in, like something yeah. that they were trying to create, and it it just kind of fell a little flat. Definitely. A little try hardy. Yes, for sure. And then my only other thing. So after the wedding, all of the girls and Logan go back to Marianne's house. Don and Marianne are going to spend one last night. But so Charlie takes them all to Marianne's house. Charlie doesn't have a you know, passenger van. Yeah. Like, so I'm just like, obviously, 1990 was a very different time. People were maybe less vigilant about 
seatbelts, for example, but <laughs> that means there are nine people in that car, including Charlie. There's no way that they were being safe about that. It just jumped out at me because I am so like hyper vigilant about seatbelts and car safety. Mm -hmm. And so to me, being like, there's nine people in this car. There's no way they all have seatbelts. They're probably sitting on each other's laps. I feel really uncomfortable and unsafe because it's a 17-year-old kid driving them. Like, Right. And it's so unnecessary because like you don't even need to say that. Right. It, it, they, we didn't need to get into how they got from one place to exactly. another. <laughs> right. Well, and it's like – so is everybody in called Charlie glancing in the rearview mirror? Yes, chorus, the eight of us. We sure were. We were squished in like sardines in a can. It's like, yeah, you don't need – just say that we all went back to Marianne's house. You don't need to talk about unsafe driving practices of 17-year-old brothers. Right? That does remind me of one other uh, – the sore head conversation reminds me of one other kind of, like, question mark thing. And I know we've talked about this before, but we saw the return of the Alan Gray, Eminem, Little Orphan Annie yes. um, impression. And I was just like, again, what kid <laughs> knows what that is? Even in the 90s. Right. Even in 1990, that's crazy. I mean, obviously, they would have known Little Orphan Annie. The movie was iconic. But, like, the 1920s cartoon with the M&Ms in the eyes does not seem like a point of reference that, that these children would know. No, not at all. So I guess last thing, unless you have anything else, obviously, we need to touch on fashion. But spoiler alert, it's a really disappointing fashion episode. <laughs> Normally, I acknowledge it, but don't pay too, too much of close attention because I know you're going to fill me in on all the really good ones and revisit them there so I don't have to remember them all. But this time, I looking over my notes, I don't, I didn't write down any kind of fashion. So what, what was it that showed up? Well, that's not true. I do remember a reference to a Laura Ashley, which, you know, seems right on par. Uh, but that's the only thing. Well, the only thing I really wanted to call out, because it is a tie-in to one of my sort of random thoughts that I hadn't mentioned yet, and I was going to mention it here. So there's a dance. We don't get a lot of dance attire. And the description of the outfit I'm about to tell you about is so basic and non-descriptive that it doesn't really need to be called out, but I have to call it out because of Dawn's question afterwards. So Claudia says about the, what she's going to wear the dance. I'm wearing my pink dress, the short one, and my earrings that look like globes. Oh, and a necklace I made from candy. And Dawn says, I can't believe there was candy in your room that you didn't eat. <laughs> Which, like, yes. it was, like, so perfect because, yes. Right. I, I Like, I want to know what kind of candy Claudia used to make this necklace, what it looks like, how she preserved it so that the candy won't, like, fall apart or melt on her neck. Like, I have... I have so many questions about this because I really want to – I just want to know. I mean, I always want to know about Claudia's outfits and accessories. But, like, this in particular, I'm like, this could be super cute or it could be, like, super stupid. <laughs> and I, I need more details. I guess I clearly didn't read that as closely because I just read it as, oh, and a candy necklace. And I was thinking, like, one of those candy necklace oh, yeah, yeah. chokers because that would have been very much the style in middle school dance mm -hmm. in 1990. I know this because I wore them. And they were, especially in a dance, just it, they ended up disgusting and your neck was all sticky yep. because you, like, ugh, just gross. But, you know, we thought they were the height of fashion. So I just assumed immediately that it was either one of those or if it was something that she had made something similar where it was like stuff that she was going to eat off mm -hmm. her necklace over the course of the night and not something that she intended to keep long term but now i see how ridiculous how ridiculous <laughs> that sounds but i i did i loved dawn's comment to that see that's the kind of like 
friend ribbing that feels real and lived in and not mean Mm -hmm. the way that along those same dance lines that Marianne, that was the fat phobia moment, said that, you know, Dawn had borrowed a skirt and she said, come to think of it, I don't think my skirt fits you very well. Oof. See that, it's wild how that sort of swings back and forth sometimes. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So I guess anything else before we do our predictions for the next book? No, I mean, there there are other things here and there, but nothing that's really worth like getting into. I yeah. think we, you get sort of the main idea <laughs> of what worked and what didn't. But this was a pretty overall packed book. Like we didn't really get into Jeff and, and Mr. Schaefer's new girlfriend too much other than to say that, you know, he was the one who gave the advice to Dawn about emotional space. Mm-hmm. And then that was a good you know, talk about a flip-flop. He gave that great advice and really opened up that conversation. And then instead, as you said, gave good advice about how to to scare Marianne. So Mm -hmm. that good is pretty, good advice overall is pretty dubious. He gave clearly some great ideas for how to terrify someone. But I thought that was interesting. And again, he's the younger brother. So it's not like I was expecting him to have have the right of it. But yeah, so like I would said, there's a lot of little stuff, but nothing, you know, I think too, too interesting. Yeah, agreed. So our next book then is Christy and the Secret of Susan. I definitely didn't read this. So I don't know if you did and you want to give us some predictions. So this one is ringing bells, but not specifically. Like there are a couple of different plot lines that I remember happening and remember reading that I think could possibly fit into this one. I believe that there was one that touched on some like secret abuse at home or um, secret financial issues or something like that, where there was something dark going on in the house. I mean, dark for for these books, Um, dark going on that Christy sees the signs of of neglect or abuse or something. Um, And then I know there's one where like a kid goes missing and like falls in a well or something. But I I don't remember what that one is either. And I don't think that that's this one. So I'm going to just go with my gut and say that there is something legitimately like because we do touch on serious topics, but, you know, with with a light touch. So I'm going to guess that there is some kind of abuse that's happening in the house that Christy starts to recognize. And we learn that not every family is a healthy, happy family like the ones we've seen so far. Okay. What about you? What do you what are you thinking? Um, I am going to say <laughs> I mean, I like literally have no idea. Okay, I'm gonna go more lighthearted. I think Good. that Susan is a new babysitting charge okay. and she and Christy hit it off. And maybe she's like I don't know. Like I feel like Okay, I'm going to guess she's some kind of, like, child prodigy in, like, art or music or, like, reading, writing. Like, I feel like like she's a baby genius, but the secret is that she doesn't like what she's good at. Oh, ooh, I like that. (laughs) And I feel like – but also I feel like that – Plotline vaguely rings a bell in that, like, being forced into something, maybe piano somewhere along the line. Although 
like we talked about, I read a lot of those different book series. And- right. I, I feel like I'm pulling this from somewhere. <laughs> like, I didn't just come up with that. I feel like that is a plot from a show or another book. Maybe it's this book. I don't remember reading this book, but maybe I did read it, and that is actually the plot. I don't know. <laughs> you, you know what's a little terrifying as we've, we're going through these predictions is I thought I remembered the Babysitter's Club way more clearly than I remembered any other series, including – the one I read next most, which was Sweet Valley University. Mm-hmm. I skipped right over the high school. But like I read, or the Lurley and McDaniels, but that is, I don't think of them quite in the same category. No. But like, I know I read Saddle Club, but I but I honestly couldn't tell you even who a main character was. I don't remember much or what even really what they did. I just remembered liking the horses. Same with like Sleepover Club. I remember the, the main character's name was Lauren Hunter, because mm-hmm. that's why I was so obsessed but I don't remember what the Sleepover Club is or why it happened or who any of the other characters were. So I I was like, Babysitter's Club was what I remember so well. And mm-hmm. now here we are. And I'm going <laughs> about <don't> that. <laughs> yeah, just kidding. There are some that we I are still very strongly on my memory. But as we get further and further along, that is clearly not the case. So <laughs> the only other thing I will say, I'm going to bring this up as a possibility, kind of cheat a little and hedge my bets is they do introduce in this book that Marianne's house is finally sold and a foreign family moves in, which is very exciting. Yes. Perhaps from Austria. Apparently the real estate agent was vague. And I was like, Austria is not, that's not vague. That's an answer. Right. (laughs) So maybe the secret of the family is, uh, or maybe the the secret needs to be discovered and there's a language barrier or something. Oh, yeah. Or maybe, maybe... Susan speaks English but doesn't want her family to know, or I I can't think of what else would be secret about that. But when you said new babysitting charge, that that's I was like, oh, that would make there's yeah. I didn't even think about that. But yes, <laughs> yeah, there's a new family coming to town. So usually when we get a new family, we get a new something to deal with. Well, we will find out in two weeks with everyone I'm else. I'm excited too because I I like I said I genuinely do not remember reading this one, so I'm excited for a new book. Of course, like I said, I could read it and be like, "Oh right, it's this one. I did read this." So we'll see. Yeah. And I'm going to just put out into the universe that I really hope you're right and I'm wrong because <laughs> me too. <laughs> after this book and and the state of the world, I, I I could use, you know, a child prodigy and not secret abuse dungeons yes well we will all find out together (laughs) in the future so i guess any other final club business just want to remind everyone that you can always reach us um, on email generationbsc at gmail.com we really love hearing from you Try to do our best to respond to everyone as quickly as possible. You can also find us on Twitter and on Instagram at GenerationBSC. Not only do we post episode updates, but Kate has been posting some of the fun stuff that we have been collecting to build out our BSC collections. So if you want to share what some of the things that are the jewels of your collection, we would so love to see mm-hmm. them. We should start a little start a little circle of all of our favorite BSC memorabilia. Definitely. But other than that, just come hang out and talk to us. That's the most fun for us is getting to to reminisce with all of you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so with that request, which is great, <laughs> I'm Kate Plasic. <laughs> and I'm Lauren Hunter. And this episode of Generation BSC is now adjourned. Say hello to you.